Welcome to Global Questions by YBS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Emma Fabriguet and Joe Marcocci. For today's wrap-up, we're talking about the depth of the Beirut explosion, TikTok bans and Instagram reels, what's going on in Belarus, and the growing acceptance of Middle Eastern states to the legitimacy of Israel. Let's get stuck into it. So we've all heard about the Beirut explosion, yet what does it mean for the future of Lebanon? In Beirut, thousands of people are rebuilding and fixing up the mess that has been left by a massive explosion that occurred on the 4th of August. Some 300,000 people have been left homeless, and that equates to 5% of the whole population. At least 135 people are expected to be dead and 5,000 people injured. And the culprit? Sheer neglect by the Lebanese government. So what was the magnitude of this bomb and why was it allowed so close to the city? That's a really good question. So the ammonium nitrate that exploded was some 2,750 tonnes and it was actually confiscated by custom officials in 2013 from Russian ship owners that were travelling to Mozambique. It's well known that this material is highly explosive and used for mining, quarrying and other industrial uses. It was actually stored at a warehouse at the Beirut port for six years. There was talk around exporting it or giving it to the army, yet the government needed to approve this and that approval just never came. There were officials at the port that warned about the ammonium nitrate and that it was equivalent of leaving a bomb on the doorstep of the city, yet these calls were ignored. But why did the government ignore these calls? Well, for those of you who don't know about the Lebanese government, it's a government for more than a decade could not agree on a parliamentary budget. This government has also allowed the same person to run the central bank for almost 30 years and ran a state-sanctioned, basically pyramid scheme, which involved paying back their debt by maintaining the Lebanese pound fixed exchange rate with the US dollar. This government has created an unsustainable economic model. It hasn't even invested in services and can't even maintain 24 hours of electricity or pick up trash that's on the side of the road. This explosion is seen as a catastrophic situation, but it also amplifies the negligence of the government. But so how is the economy and population suffering before this explosion? So this country has been slipping into economic crisis since October. And for decades, it has relied on the pegging of its dollar to the US, yet it's slowly breaking away. The Lebanese pound has lost 80% of its value on the black market, which has contributed to runaway inflation. For a country that imports almost everything from food to fuel, this means that inflation sits around at 80% and for food around 200%. Fuel shortages are very common now, which causes blackouts. Some blackouts last up to 20 hours or longer. This has led to widespread poverty. The official figures show that at least half the country is below the poverty line and could rise to 75% by the end of the year. And what would that mean for the future of Lebanon? What does that look like? Yeah, so the current government was installed in January and is a technocratic government. It was installed to tackle these actual issues and negotiate the country out of crisis with the IMF. Yet it has made almost no progress. They haven't really been able to even negotiate with the IMF because they're still negotiating with themselves. There were increasing calls for this government to step down. Now the Prime Minister and Cabinet have officially resigned after this explosion and the government is in caretaker mode. This means that the current government will remain until a new government is formed and a new leader is chosen, 
which is up to the parliament to decide. Yet it is likely to be mired in the same secretarial process which many people have been protesting against for its corruption for the past months. Okay, Jane, well, thank you for that wrap up. Now, if we move on to why we're saying goodbye to TikTok and what's up with the new Instagram reels, you would be living under a rock if you haven't heard of TikTok. And hey, I'm not judging you if you have it, spent hours on it, or like me, had to literally get rid of it because I'm mindlessly scrolling. But for Trump to have outright banned it, there's obviously something more to the story. So how did TikTok become a political affair? So it's no secret that Trump has long been vocal on its distrust and disapproval of China's technology sector in regards to security concerns, and its most recent target being Chinese-owned app WeChat, which is pretty much like WhatsApp, and more recently, the sensational time-killing app, as we like to know, TikTok. He's gone as far as signing an executive order to ban TikTok in the US over security concerns if a US buyer does not take over the app, but it's not alone. India actually banned TikTok in June, I think it was June 29th, due to military conflicts between the nations, which actually resulted in the boycotting of several Chinese products. But what does the rest of America say? Well, the US population has been skeptical, most notably because experts have suggested that there's no clear evidence that supports Trump's claims on data collection violations. But not to worry, for those wondering what a TikTokless world looks like, you don't have to. Because within a week of Trump mentioning a ban, Facebook-owned Instagram jumped to the opportunity of replacing it with its own TikTok, this time called Reels. You see, CEO of TikTok, Kevin Mayer, has expressed that it has always abided by local laws and has not had any reason for others to suspect foul play, such as sharing consumer data to foreign governments or companies. But whether these claims are true is still out for jury. That's so interesting. I love that people are jumping on, especially now that Microsoft is placing their bid on TikTok as well. We'll be right back. The Young Diplomat Society presents to you Human Rights and Non-State Actors, a free event on the 1st of September at 5.30pm. Join YDS for an evening focused on human rights, exploring the non-state sector and its role in strengthening international governance and accountability. We'll be joined by Dr. Carla Winston and Jacob Thomas, two experts on the topic. Dr. Winston's research focuses on transitional justice, NGOs, and the intersection between human rights and business. Jacob Thomas has a broad range of advocacy experience, notably their role in the Commonwealth Youth Gender and Equality Network. They have also recently published a chapter on the role of youth in attaining the Sustainable Development Goals. So head to the link in the description to register. We look forward to seeing you there. Okay, but enough of that. What's actually going on in Belarus? Jen, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so recently there have been elections in Belarus, which some of you may have heard of, and the widespread protests. Yet, what is actually happening and why are people protesting this election? There's a strong figure leading this movement called Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, who has been the main opposition leader in this year's election in Belarus. She was a stay-at-home mother until her husband was arrested. She brought hope to thousands of people who are desperate and calling for change and who have been under the authoritarian rule of Alexander Lukashenko for 26 years. People took to the streets after the election results showed a landslide victory for the president. Yet protesters were met with a violent response from the police. At least two people died and thousands arrested. Wait, so who is Svetlana and where is she now? So... 
Svetlana came into the scene because there was a huge groundswell of discontent and her husband is a famous YouTuber who actually was running for president but was banned and blocked from taking part and then arrested and he's still in jail right now. Then Svetlana became kind of an accidental candidate and she gained heaps of support which the other candidates and the president didn't actually think would happen. Svetlana has received threats to her and her children, so she's actually fled the country. She also released a video that expresses her concerns for the people of Belarus. And I've heard some talk that Russia's involved, so could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so... Russia actually borders Belarus and they have been a union state since the 90s. Their economies and military have been intertwined and increasingly Russia is wanting Belarus to become integrated even more. The relationship actually works well for Lukashenko as he's played the West against Russia's power off each other for many years. So this means that when the West is pushing for him to change in areas of human rights law, international law, he can run to Russia for economic support, yet vice versa. So Putin is pressing him too much on integrating his economy with Russia. He can seek support in the West. The most important thing for Lukashenko is his power and not to lose it to Russia or the West. So he's in a bit of a sticky situation at the moment. But like you said, with 26 years of leadership, can Alexander Lukashenko be taken down by the protest movement currently going on? Yeah, so Sunday the 9th was actually when the results of the election were released and 80% of votes went to Alexander Lukashenko and people were not happy about it. Like, the protests were definitely peaceful, but the police started to disperse people with gas and rubber bullets, and even police vans rammed into protesters at least twice. Many people have been thought to be missing. This is the narrative for a lot of journalists and other prominent protesters. There has been heightened demands for a recount and calls that the election was rigged and Svetlana actually filled out a formal request for a recount before she fled the country. Yet the future of these protests is really hard to say. It could see that the government makes it so difficult for people to protest that there isn't enough momentum, yet the counter argument to this is that that could be really dangerous for the government because it could instigate even more violence. Even the military could step down and become protesters. So it will be really interesting to see how this all unfolds. So from looking to peaceful protests, we can now also talk about peaceful agreements. If you guys have been following the news, you might have seen that there's been a growing acceptance of Middle Eastern states to the legitimacy of Israel, known as the Abraham Agreement, which was facilitated by President Trump. Just last week, the United Arab Emirates became the third country following Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994 to recognize Israel as a legitimate state within the Middle East. But what does this mean? It means that the UAE will commence diplomatic ties with Israel, including, but not limited to, direct flights between the capitals, diplomatic representatives in each nation, trading, and overall a normalization of an actual relationship and mutual sovereign respect. The potential of this deal is huge, considering the economic might of both nations. Israel leading in innovation and technology, while the UAE prospers as a financial and investment hub. As Federal MP of Wentworth in New South Wales and former Ambassador of Israel Dave Sharma noted in his recent opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, it comes as no surprise that the UAE was next in line to join Egypt and Jordan in Israel's recognition, as it's one of the most progressive and moderate of the Gulf states, perhaps to be followed by Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states. 
But why is this actually happening now? So we may only be hearing about it now, but this has been a long-coming goal of Israel and the Gulf states especially, with rising tensions and mutual concerns of Iran's nuclear ambitions, missile capabilities, and regional destabilizing efforts. Communication and coordination has actually been strong between the Gulf state and Israel through departments of intelligence and retired generals. You see, the UAE maintains diplomatic and trading ties with Iran, which will without a doubt unsettle Iran, but this is actually nothing new. The UAE has had a strong anti-Iran foreign policy stance since early 2020, following increasing US sanctions on the nation. But that's a whole other story. As such, it's unlikely to rupture their relations as Iran really can't afford further isolation from the region at this point or deepen its economic calamity, especially when looking at the importance of the UAE. In 2018, the UAE made up 9% of Iran's GDP. So what does this mean for Palestine? So why any other Gulf states may be keen on following the UAE besides economic incentives is actually due to the attractiveness of making a two-state solution more likely, that being both for Israel and Palestine. If you've been following the news, you may have seen talks of Israel declaring the West Bank as an Israeli domestic area rather than a military-controlled territory, which it currently is. However, a point of negotiation towards this UAE-Israel deal was that claims to the West Bank be cancelled. While Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel says that these plans have only been put on hold, speculations are that they will be cancelled, especially if this deal is going to go through. Overall, if this deal does follow through, it has great potential economically, diplomatically and politically for the region, hopefully coming one step closer to peace and prosperity. That sounds like a pretty good story to end on. I'm excited to see which way this deal goes. Well, guys, thanks for listening to our bi-weekly news wrap-up and make sure to check in for our upcoming Trailblazers and in-depth episodes.